morning. Welcome to Conroe Bible Church. Welcome to Conroe Bible Church. It's good to see you all this morning. If you were one of our guests, we want you to know that you're most welcome. It, we're glad to have you with us this morning. And I have, I have a few announcements, a few announcements. So the, the first one is the end of August is when we begin Awana here at CBC. And so if you've got a kiddo that is aged, I think it's four through 11, you can go ahead and sign them up. You can find that online on the church website or on Church Center. Um, you can go ahead and sign your kiddos up. That's and, and then it'll be a, a $30 per kid or $60 for a whole family. So you can accumulate kids from your neighborhood and, and send them all to Awana just for 60 bucks or, or just yours. <clears throat> the, uh, the next thing is, is next week, um, we've got a, uh, a Beyond Our Doors project over at Parmley that we want to invite you to be a part of. You can sign up to be a part of that also on Church Center. And uh, one of the things that, uh, that we have done in preparation for that event is collect teacher school supplies. And this past Friday, our women's ministry got together and did... Uh, a handful of things, one of which was put these teacher supplies together, um, and I was I was I was given a message yesterday from from the lady in charge of all that stuff, and she said, "So here's an opportunity for you. So so take note of this: that they're in need of 19 clipboards and 29 pushpin packs to complete our teacher packages." So if you are so inclined, um, please consider going and gathering those supplies so that we can complete our teacher packages for uh, our friends over at Parmley. Um, also, our women's retreat is happening in October, um, but they have sent out a, uh, a save the date maybe three weeks ago, four weeks ago, and today is the first day that you can register. You register on Church Center, and that opens up at 2 p.m. Registration does. There are limited seats, so if you're interested in going on the women's retreat, um, make a note, and at 2 p.m., be ready to pull the trigger on Church Center. That's all I have. So let's begin. Let's begin this morning with uh, just a word from Scripture. Would you guys stand up with us? I'm going to read from Psalm 145, and I'm going to start in verse 8. It says, The Lord is gracious and merciful, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love. The Lord is good to all, and His mercy <clears throat> is over all that He has made. All your work shall give you thanks, O Lord. And all your saints shall bless you. They shall speak of the glory of your kingdom and tell of your power to make known to the children of man your mighty deeds and the glorious splendor of your kingdom. Your kingdom is an everlasting kingdom and your dominion endures throughout all generations. Let's worship together.
passion, love that's never failing. Let mercy fall on me. Everyone needs forgiveness, the kindness of a Savior, the hope of
Father, we thank you for this time that we have to remember your son and the life that he gave for us. As we celebrate today, as we remember today, would you draw us close? Would you make us more like him? We pray in his name. Amen. You guys can have a seat. We're going to go into a time of communion now. And so if you haven't had an opportunity to go in the back and get some of the uh, elements back there, there's, I think there's still plenty. Um, so we just ask parents to guide your children through it as you see fit with your family. We do like to practice open communion here, which basically means that all those that follow after Jesus are welcome to join in with us. And uh, I wanted to spend time in this community time today, uh, focusing on one particular passage that I, I really have always been one of my favorites. Um, I find it to be really helpful in explaining the gospel, and it also is really helpful in, in just a meditation of what exactly happened on the cross, this, this thing that we remember every time we, we have communion and we sing songs like we sang this morning, reminding us and, and focusing on Christ's work on the cross for us. And uh, I think I'm going to have it up on the screen for you. It's 2 Corinthians 5.21. For he made him who knew no sin to become sin for us so that we might become the righteousness of God. And it is such a crucial verse. If, if you've never spent time meditating on it, uh, memorizing it, and, and having it come to mind, we're uh, in our series this morning, as, as we discuss the breastplate of righteousness, we're going to be looking at righteousness and how it plays into our spiritual warfare uh, with the one that accuses us, uh, how important it is to remember the righteousness of God and how we were given an opportunity to stand in the presence of God because of this exchange that took place on the cross, that we brought sin, we brought uh, rebellion and, and all kinds of reason and justification for God's wrath, and God brought forgiveness and grace. And he exchanged with us, someone that did not know sin became that object of wrath for us on the cross. And he gave us, in exchange for that experience, his righteousness. It's not just something for nothing, it's, it's something for a whole lot of negative. And so it's, it's, it's a verse that is certainly worthy of our time to meditate on it. And so before we uh, take communion together, I just wanted to give everyone a moment to pray over this verse. Maybe uh, give a prayer back of thanksgiving as a family or on your own uh, for this great exchange that God did in us so that we might have the righteousness of God. Or just, just spend time thinking on, meditating on what it meant for Jesus to become sin for us. He that knew no sin. And it's a difficult thing and we have to kind of spend time on it because we are so acquainted with our sin. I think it takes a lot more effort for us to sit and think, what would it be like for a sinless substitute to exist? And that's what Jesus was on the cross for us. So take a moment, and then I'll bring us back together in prayer.
God, we come before you with praise and gratitude and awe and a lot of questions probably of why anyone would do such a thing as this. And we're brought back to your love. Your desire to know us was so great. So we thank you that we can now spend time in communion, this opportunity that you passed down to us to remember what it meant for you to become sin for us so that we might become the righteousness of God. And so I pray now as we do that very thing, this act that we try to do with a sincere heart to look to you and and look to the future of when you come again, the thing that unites us all in your righteousness, in your forgiveness, in your grace. In Jesus' name, amen. So a book before that, a letter before that, and... 1 Corinthians, Paul lays out some instruction on communion. And and so as you take your little cups, take out the bread part or unwrap the bread part. He says, For I received from the Lord what I also deliver to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread. And when he had given thanks, he said, Take this this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. So let's, let's pray for his body that was given for us. Dear God, I thank you for that sinless body that was broken for us and this great symbol that we can gather now and remember it together. In Jesus' name, amen. So let's take the bread together. And it says, in the same way, I also took the cup. So feel free to open your little cups. I'll let all the noises subside. Jesus said, this is the cup in the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink in remembrance of me. So let's drink it together. God, we do this in remembrance of you and we do it in gratitude for what you did for us. So I pray right now as we enter into a time of expanding on your righteousness, what you truly, this gift you truly gave us to be able to live victorious Christian lives here on this broken planet with an adversary that does accuse us that does seek to hold us down, take us out of the fight. Pray that your blood and your body would become a remembrance daily in that, that because of it, we have the righteousness of God. We can put on the breastplate of righteousness. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, so you can feel free to stack up your cups and kind of gather them together under your chair. They'll be picked up later, or you can take them with you if you leave, if you're feeling up to it. Uh, Right now, we're going to have our our Sunshine Kids Club kids dismissed. That's our kindergarten through fifth grade kids. If you're a visitor with us, feel free to take your kids over there and get them checked in, meet meet the crew that leads that, and then you can pick them up from the assembly room afterwards. Man, I guess all the kids are on vacation. The thundering herd was not so thundering. 
I want to start off this morning by inviting a, a, a Brent Stowe up. He's a, we're going to talk a little bit about some of the gear that he wears as a police officer. He's been a longtime police officer here in Conroe for 20-something years now, right? Yes, sir. Or I'll let you, I don't know, if you, can you put that on and hold a microphone? I'm going to do a skills test. So he has brought what most of us are familiar with as a bullet, I guess we can't call it proof. Is that, is that a bulletproof vest? Uh, negative. There's okay. not too many things that are bulletproof. Okay. So we call it bullet resistant. All right. And that's for the lawyers? Correct. Okay. <laughs> so we're talking today, as I've said already, about breastplate of righteousness, right? And um, some people call it a heart protector. Because as we seek to stand up to our adversary, he's trying to go after our heart. So tell me, when police officers have to wear this, why are they wearing it? And a lot of these questions are going to be like kindergarten questions. We all already know the answer, but we're, I, I want to use it. So go ahead. Why, why are you wearing that when you go out on the field? So mainly just to protect our vital organs, our yeah. heart and our lungs, the thing that keep us alive. Yeah. Um, you know, we, you try to cover up as much as you can without... Uh, restricting your movement. So if yeah. we tried to cover up every body part, yeah. it'd be pretty hard to, yeah. to move. So it's on the front and the back. Correct. Yeah. Um, a lot of people don't realize when we talk about a breastplate uh, that the Roman soldiers wore that is described here, uh, it did have a front on the back as well. Some people had the, uh, uh, the thought that, well, there's no back described in the armor of God because we're not supposed to run from the devil. That's not accurate. Um, we were actually talking about how some of them, you can take the plates out, and I was remembering in, uh, in Black Hawk Down, if you remember that story, a lot of the soldiers took the plates out of the back because they said they wouldn't be running from the enemy. And then they ended up running from the enemy in that movie, if you remember her story. It was a real story. Um, so police officers, do they have the option? Are you allowed to go out and not wear this? Not, not these days. Yeah. No, not, not now. Why, if, you're, you know, if you're patrolling a really nice neighborhood, why would you, need, why would you still want to wear that? You just, you just never know when that time's going to come where, you know, the danger, danger, the enemy's out there. You don't ever know where you're going to meet mm -hmm. them. So. so if you were in the middle of a firefight, would you decide to take it off so you could kind of maneuver better? No. <laughs> and why would that be? Uh, well, one, it would take time to take it off. And, yeah. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> All right. So you're a pretty big guy. Do they not make a bigger one? Because I feel like when I look at this, <laughs> there's a lot of vitals still hanging out. So this is what we call um, kind of a bailout kit. This is just, I don't know if you could hear that. These are ceramic plates that are in this. This is just a plate carrier. The actual vest that patrolmen wear is a soft body armor that wraps around pretty much mm -hmm. like a cummerbund. Yeah. And that protects a little bit of the, uh, the love handles. And, yeah. And things like that. Yeah, sure. So, and this is what patrol would wear if they knew they were going to like an active shooter or something a little bit more dangerous. They wanted more cover, or they knew the bad guy had a rifle. Uh, this is rifle. You know, our our patrol vests are not rifle rated. They're pretty much just all handgun rounds, uh, mm -hmm. and only rated for handgun rounds. This is rated for multiple strikes of, of rifle rounds. So, yeah, a little bit heavier, uh, but it should get the job done. All right. Well, thank you. Appreciate you coming up. Yes, sir. Yeah. Give, give Brent a hand for all he does. He's also wearing his uh, shirt. He's making these shirts to uh, promote his kind of side project of, of loving others. His first John 
421, right? Okay. Um, it's Roman, Roman numerals. I'm a little, little slow on that. Uh, but yeah, he'd love to, love to get you one on, on you and use it as an opportunity to share the gospel in your neighborhood. Um, so yeah, so as you, obviously the, the bulletproof vest is kind of our modern equivalent of the breastplate or the heart protector. And I, I really like that term and it's what I wanted to kind of focus on um, this morning as we're on our next step on how to stand up against our adversary. And as you heard, uh, as a police officer, you're given that to protect your heart and other vital organs. And you would not uh, just decide one day, okay, today I'm not going to wear it. And I'm just going to go out and just assume I will not be attacked. Uh, you prepare knowing that the adversary is out there. And as Christians, I think we, uh, we live so often, so many days where we just kind of assume there's no adversary and, and how quickly we lose heart as a result of these uh, you know, attacks by our adversary going after our, our, our vital organs to try to give us a mortal blow and take us out. Um, so as, as we open up to Ephesians 6, which has kind of been our jumping off point this series, as we, as we are looking at Paul's instructions on putting on the whole armor of God, we're going to see this, this breastplate of righteousness listed in Ephesians 6, and I'm going to read uh, all of 13 and 14 now. We covered the, the uh, belt of truth last week, and it's all in the same kind of concept, because uh, in many ways, truth and righteousness go together, and it's a common scriptural pairing. And, um, and as well as when you look at the Roman soldier, the belt kind of held, held the breastplate on. And so you would put the belt on first and kind of put the breastplate on, kind of tuck it in. And it kind of all stayed together as one unit. And he says, therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand the evil day and having done all to stand firm. Stand, therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth and having put on the breastplate of righteousness. Question that I was left with as I considered this breastplate of righteousness, righteousness or this heart protector concept is how does righteousness protect my heart? And that's really the question I wanted to center on and to figure out why does, what does righteousness have to do with my heart? Well, as I considered that, I, I think I had to start with the, uh, the attack, you know, because as, as Brent was just pointing out, uh, they have different kinds of vests based on what the kind of attack that might, you know, they, they might have to endure. And in the same way, I, I thought, okay, why did, why did Paul describe it this way? Why did he link the breastplate with righteousness? And so I, I wanted to look at that. And, and, I, and I think as I kind of walk down that path, it'll finally all come together. But I wanted to start with the kind of attacks that we're going to get. And, and this morning, I think what really pairs with this protection is the concept of our adversary being an accuser. Um, and so I want to take you over to a, a piece of, of scripture where that title is kind of given, and it's all the way at the back of your Bible. Um, and, uh, and we will be in a few, a few different passages today, but I, I do want you to kind of look at that. So if you have opportunity to turn over to Revelation chapter 12, um, we will have it up on the screen as well. But Revelation chapter 12 <clears throat> is where this concept is brought up. And, and it is wrapped in a, in a section of, this, of, of a book that is, that is obviously very figurative and, uh, and, and generally forward thinking. 
But I think here in particular is, is more descriptive, uh, where it's kind of a parenthetical story or, or uh, a, a, of a description of the history of this great spiritual war. Um, I, I've often described uh, chapter 12 as being more of a, the history of, of Scripture and the Bible from heaven's point of view. And so here in, in this particular verse, verse 10, you see... God describing our adversary from the point of view of what he does in, in, in when kind of what our physical experience is from his point of view of what uh, between him and God. And it says, and I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come. And, and to me, I think that's the moment Christ conquered on the cross is when Satan was conquered. He's defeated, as we've brought up in this series. This warfare is not an, an even fight between God and Satan. We're not all just pawns in some battle where, you know, maybe we'll get to win. It's just a question of how successful our Christian life will be as to whether we are going to lean into the, the victory that Christ has already won. And so here's the description that Christ has already come and he, his authority and his kingdom have, has come. And the accuser of our brothers and sisters have been thrown down, who accuses them day and night before our God. So this is describing that point in time where no longer do his accusations hold water because Christ has paid the penalty for the sins that he accuses us of. So the power of his accusation and the court of God is void. And he's thrown down, but now he is a defeated foe that is thrashing and causing as much damage as possible. So from our perspective and our experience, we are still hearing those accusations, but they only are given as much power and damage as we are willing to accept so how does Satan accuse now is the question. How does he accuse? And from my reading and gathering a few things, I saw three ways that Satan does accuse. One being our past sins. He loves to run that highlight reel when we're trying to go to sleep, when we're feeling defeated, when we're sick, when we're wore out, when we are weak things tend to come up in our mind. You know, we have those memories, we have those thoughts. But much like any other temptation of the adversary, he can show us a, a glance of something, but it's kind of up to us to decide whether I'm going to meditate on it. This is always described to me as a young man growing up. Satan may show you a pretty girl, but you don't have to sit there and stare at her. Right? That's the difference between the accusation and us being tripped up by it. Yes, those things, I did those things. I claimed them. I, they happened. Satan's desire is for us to sit and linger on them. And so if he can successfully get us to focus off of Christ and onto our past mistakes, his accusation has won. The second one, as you can see up there, is other people will accuse us. All throughout scripture, we see that people that God has empowered to do his work someone steps up and accuses them falsely. And you start at the top, Jesus. We just sang a song about Jesus was falsely accused. And he told us if the master is treated that way, they will certainly treat his servants the same way. And so we should have an expectation that in this life, 
as we like to tell our children, it's not fair. We will be falsely accused as believers in our workplace, with our family, with our friends. There will be times where we will, there, the Satan's system that he has set up will work to his advantage to bring an accusation through other people. And the third one is just our circumstances. How often have you had that thought whenever things just didn't go the way you thought they would go? Loss of a job, loss of a loved one, loss of a relationship. You just, all the hard work you put into something did not develop in any fruit. And the very next thought you get is, I guess, I guess God is just judging me. I guess God doesn't like me. I guess God hates me. And those are the progressions that you take. But as a child of God, we know none of those things are true. But Satan will use those circumstances in our life to lift up an accusation against us. And so Satan's accusations, they can cause us to lose heart when we accept them, right? When we accept the accusations of Satan, we can lose heart. So we need a heart protector. We need something that holds us up. And that takes us back to our 2 Corinthians verse. Because we are reminded that when we put on this heart protector, when we put on the breastplate of righteousness, that we can stand because we are not under his righteousness, right? For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. When we put on the breastplate of righteousness, we can stand against those accusations because we do not stand in our own righteousness. It's an important concept to understand when we're talking about how does righteousness protect our heart? Because it's not our righteousness. It's the righteousness of Christ. And we are given the righteousness of God faith in him. It's a gift we've already been given. It's a question of whether I'm going to put it on. This righteousness that's been given to us has been called imputed righteousness. And I want to kind of give, put, throw something up that explains what that means, because it's, it's one of those theological terms. We don't throw around a whole lot in our tradition here. Maybe you grew up in one where imputed righteousness was like in every sermon. Um, we don't bring it up as often, but imputed righteousness just simply means God credits our account with the righteousness of Christ. It is exactly the verse we just looked at, 2 Corinthians 5:21. He who knew no sin became sin for us, and we became the righteousness of Christ. He gave us a negative account. So if you think about, all of us probably experienced an overdraft at a time or two. And uh, now they have overdraft protection. So maybe no one really knows the fear that we experienced back when, when we find out, I just, I just spent more money than I have. And now, for some reason, they're going to find me more money. <laughs> I don't have the money that I already took out of it, uh, but somehow they're going to squeeze water from a rock. Imputed righteousness means that we had no righteousness of our own. We had no source for righteousness. And in fact, the only source we try to use, we call self-righteousness. Well, in the Old Testament, we're told that self-righteousness is like filthy rags, right? It's when we try to, to earn any kind of favor, when we try to come to God on our terms, God looks at that like filthy rags. But 
when we stand in the righteousness of Christ, he sees Christ. It was described to me as us getting to stand behind Christ. And when God looks at us, he sees his son. That's imputed righteousness. That's a pretty strong bulletproof vest that you are invited to put on. Imputed righteousness. So when those accusations come your way, you can proclaim, I'm forgiven. I'm forgiven. That's what a breastplate of righteousness does. It reminds you of the righteousness you've been given by God because of the work of Christ on the cross, having nothing to do of yourself as a gift of God so that no one can boast self-righteousness. Instead, we can stand under his righteousness and say, yes, you are correct. I did every single one of those things, but they've all been bought and paid for. And they don't, do not have to take us out of the battle. And when we don't put on the breastplate of righteousness, we take ourselves out of the battle. We lose heart. It makes me think of Romans 8 when we proclaim... I'm forgiven. We're proclaiming Romans 8, right? When it begins, there is therefore now no condemnation for those that are in Jesus Christ. Well, who's accusing? Who's seeking condemnation? It's our adversary. Now, I want to point out and I will remind of something that Dave said at the very beginning of the series. Satan is not all-knowing. He's not omniscient. He is not God's equal. And, and thus, a lot of people have kind of dismissed him as you would as soon as you figured out the logic of Santa Claus doesn't fit. If you think, you know, how does one guy get an, gifts for all these kids all in one night? It doesn't make any sense. So how can one adversary run around and actually know all the bad stuff I did and all the bad stuff you did and every other of the billions of people on this planet? Well, probably none of us have actually had Satan himself be the one that walks up and accuses us because he doesn't have to. He has his workers. We know that he has those that he has sent out. And they may not be all-knowing, but they've been around a while. And certainly they've seen us humans repeat some things. They, I think, know our number. They know what makes us tick, and they know what trips us up. There's nothing new under the sun. None of us have invented new sins. It's real easy to just walk up and repeat the same things, because we've all done the same things. But I think more likely it's this, that Satan has constructed the system that we live in, the broken world that we live in, in a sense that accusations just come naturally. It doesn't take us a whole lot of work to self-accuse. When we are reminded, and it, you know, if there's a whisper, if there's anything set up to say, oh yeah, that's who I really am. I am I'm just a guy that is not worthy to be even out on the playing field. Just put me on the bench. I'll just ride the bench till this thing's done. And that is Satan's goal for your life. To cause as much destruction and distraction in your life so that you cannot be any good for kingdom work. And so when Paul describes this armor and says to put it on, it's, it would be like a police officer saying, well, today I probably won't, there won't, you know, I'm just going to sit in my car, stay in the garage. And uh, I, just, I just don't want to put that on today. We have an adversary who has set up a system, who has workers, who have people that seek destruction in this planet, not just demons, but I think people, unregenerate people that are caught up in the system of this world that 
are bent on destruction and we live among them and we're called to love them and serve them, then they can accuse just as much. So it is a real war. We can lose heart when we don't stand in the righteousness of God. But we can go to places like Romans 8 and be reminded that nothing can separate me from the love of God. That when that laundry list of things that have come up in my life, I, I, can, I can look at it and I can put Christ on that. I can say, he paid for that. When I'm reminded of something I said that I wish I hadn't, that act I did that I wish I didn't do, that relationship that is messed up because of my stupidity, those are all real things and I might be living in the consequences of it. But that doesn't mean I, I have to be taken out of the game. And I, I want to stop right now, and it's just because just it's coming to mind that if, if you have felt like you cannot serve God the way God has gifted you to do so because of past mistakes, understand that that is not God's will for your life. He already paid for those sins, and in fact, he called you knowing full well the laundry list that came along with you. None of us were recruited as five-star recruits. We all have been given grace and an opportunity to be used by God through his strength and his power and his redemption. Which leads us to kind of the next step of this idea of how righteousness protects our heart. You see, ultimately, we stand under his righteousness, but his righteousness leads us to right living. When, when we stand and put on the new self, as Paul is going to describe in Ephesians 4, we're going to go over there in just a minute. When we look at the new self and the new righteousness of God that we've been given through the work of Christ and we've been given uh, this new self, we can now do what's called right living. And that's really what righteousness means. Righteousness is simply right living. It's not perfect living for us. <laughs> And, and, and so I want to look at, at Ephesians 4, starting in, uh, uh, I believe it's, I'm going to flip over there, I believe it's verse 17. And in the middle of it, there's a phrase that says, give no opportunity to the devil. Now, this may be a phrase you've heard before, a verse you've heard before that's attached to anger. And it is in this, in this passage, but it's not necessarily just for that. It really is a clarifier, a, a, a qualifier that Paul puts in his teaching on walking the new life that can be attributed to the whole section. And put simply, if the breastplate of righteousness protects our heart through the righteousness of, of Christ, the righteousness of Christ leads us to be able to live rightly before him so we can stop giving him more ammunition. When we live right, when we live righteously, not self-righteously, but in the righteousness of Christ, when we put on the new self, we stop giving the adversary more ammunition. And that just seems logical, right? So whenever we see passages like this that, that 
is, seems to be on the behavioral level. Of, oh, God's just about rules and restricting me and keeping me from having any fun. That's the way the world would view these parts of Scripture. But understand, they are not. They're, they're done in love to say, you know, life just goes so much better when you follow my will, when you seek obedience, when you seek faithfulness, and when, when you put on that, righteous, that breastplate of righteousness, you are standing in his righteousness so that you can also practice righteousness so that you cut down on the number of things that the adversary can throw back at you. And that is so crucial. So let's, let's look at that. If you've, if you've made your way over there to Ephesians 4, verse 17, we're going to look at this new life that he describes. And I want to read 17 through 24, and then I'm going to stop and talk about it for a little bit. Now this I say and testify in the Lord that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. Now, he's using the phrase there, not in necessarily contrast to Judaism, but in contrast to people that have not placed their faith in Christ. So this would be pre-Christ people, people that have, have, have not had their minds renewed, have not had the Holy Spirit come and live with them, they have not been regenerated. They are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them, due to their hardness of heart. They have become callous and have given themselves to the sensuality to sensuality, greedy, to practice of every kind of impurity. But that is not the way you learn Christ, assuming that you have heard about him and were taught in him, as the truth is in Jesus, to put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires, and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds, to put on the new self, created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. Do you see there that Paul links the two kinds of righteousness that were to put on the new self, which is me and you. It's talking about you now and how you use your bodies and how I use my bodies and my thoughts and my affections and my mind and my emotions, that it is attached to the true righteousness that we are given from God. So Paul is not describing here the old self with just a bunch of new friends, right? It doesn't help to fight this battle just to go to church now and hang out with healthier friends because you, you've brought in the sickness to the, to the castle. And it's not the new self with self-righteousness. It's, it's not saying, okay, Jesus got you in the door and now you got to do it all yourself. It's not that. It is saying that when we rely on the righteousness that Christ gives us, it is true righteousness. So I want to look at, in the next few verses, there's three ways that Paul points out here. Now, obviously, you could have a, a really long list of ways that we could be living in such a way that, that prevents our adversary from having more ammunition to throw at us. But I, I find it interesting that Paul picks these three ways. And, and so there are three ways to protect our heart with our, our uh, putting on our heart protector. The first one is, that we're to protect our heart with righteous relationships. And I, I don't think it's any, you know, just random that he starts with relationships, because if you think about, again, going back to that highlight reel of mistakes that plays when you're asleep, so many of them are linked to relationships. So many of, of our past mistakes that Satan likes to throw back in our face have to do with people that we love, whether they were hurt us and we reacted badly or we hurt someone else. 
So we need to allow the righteousness of Christ to guide us in righteous living and right living in our relationships. So he says this about our relationships. Therefore, in verse 25, having put away falsehood, so this is the new self, because the old self was all about deceit. New self is about truth in Christ. Let each of one of you speak the truth with his neighbor, for we are members of one another. Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger. And give no opportunity to the devil. In our relationships, we need to practice honesty and short accounts. Honesty and short accounts are two things that I think that Paul is guiding us to to say when you put on that breastplate of righteousness, it allows you to practice truth in Christ and short accounts in Christ because there is a, a love that pervades the righteousness of Christ that makes us want to step into those relationships and live them as God would want us to live them, mainly being no longer about me. <laughs> no longer self-centered. It's about the other person. And it's amazing when you run your relationships through that filter, how many, how many times you can avoid that landmine, that, that thing that Satan can then hold up later and use against you. Protects your heart. See, it isn't God trying to restrict your fun. He's trying to protect your heart in the way that we live, the choices that we make. The second way that God protects our heart is through righteous purpose. And he's going to use an example here, but I, I think the principle given can be expanded. Verse 28, he says, let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor doing honest work with his own hands so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. The new self when we walk in the righteousness of God, we have new purpose. And again, it does come down to is no longer about me. I no longer meet my needs my way right now when I want them. In fact, instead, it's a dependency that is developed. And we begin to look to how God is going to meet my needs. He's going to provide work for me. He's going to provide a paycheck. He's going to provide honest means. But notice it isn't just about what I get. It's about what I'm supposed to do with what I get. And now it's a stewardship thing which really comes down to our purpose, why I'm here. I'm here to not just build up my kingdom. I'm here to build up the kingdom of God, to be a light, to make disciples, to love others. And so suddenly my stuff has purpose. And when I put on that breastplate of righteousness, I protect my heart from the stuff getting in there and taking over my life. And I, I'm tempted to go here, and, and I only am because John Collier brought it up, that uh, if, you've watched, if you've watched the new Loki show at all, and I know hardly any of you have, but we've been watching it. If you, if you remember the Loki character, he's from the Avengers series, um, and he's one of the villains. He's, he's Thor's adopted brother. And in the Loki series, it gets brought up that really his whole purpose is to be the guy that loses, He's the guy that gets beat up. He's the puppet. He's the one that gets taken advantage of. But it's always because he is so self-centered and so arrogant. And he's always, his phrase is, seeking glorious purpose. And in this new Loki series, it really draws that out. And I really like it about it because he learns that glorious purpose cannot be glorious purpose if it's self-centered. If it's all about building my own kingdom, this is never going to work. I'm going to keep getting beat up. 
And, I, I, and so when I think about having righteous purchase, I, I can't help but have that image in my head because I think of all the times that when, I, when I've tripped up with how I'm living my life, the purpose that I set out to live my life each day, when I do so seeking my own glorious purpose, I'm yelling at the wind. When I set out each day and I put on the righteousness of Christ, it protects my heart because I'm not striving to build my own kingdom. Instead, I'm a servant of the kingdom of God and I find success. And I find the accusations of, of God or of, of our adversary just melt off. And it reminds me of Zacchaeus. If you remember the story of Zacchaeus, when Jesus was walking through Zacchaeus, the wee little man, right? Wee little man was he. And he, he couldn't see over the crowds and he climbed up the, the what? Sycamore tree. What was Zacchaeus' problem? He was a tax collector, and he was essentially a thief. He stole, and it was government-sanctioned thievery, but he was a thief. And so he was marginalized, but it also means that he, uh, the adversary had an awful lot of ammunition on him. And I think that caused him to run from the community of faith, and, and he was probably not treated well by the community of faith. And so when Jesus shows up, though, the game changes. And suddenly, when he interacts with the righteousness, the true righteousness of Christ, he stands up and proclaims, now I'm going to give it all back. In fact, I'm going to give more back. In fact, my whole purpose in life has changed. I'm no longer going to be a thief, but I'm going to use my job righteously. That's what happens when we wear a heart protector. And then the third way that I think Paul points out that righteousness protects our heart is through righteous words. So he's coming back to relationships because if it's words, there's someone, there's communication happening. Although I would say today, uh, more words are happening without anyone necessarily being a target of our words via, you know, just sending stuff out in social media that we live in a world today where our words are expanded upon and used and weaponized. And if, if we ever could understand what it means to live in a world where we are accused, based on the world system, it's how many times a week someone says something and someone turns it around and then they got to back it down or they're going to get fired or they're going to, you know, it just seems like it's just, you know, just don't say anything anymore. Because right? you can get beat up. That's the world we live in. And I think so Paul's words here on how to protect our heart with our words carry so much more weight now. Verse 29, he says, let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up, as fits the occasion that it may give grace to those who hear. This is a really difficult verse for those that were you know, born with the gift of sarcasm. It's, it's been one of the ones I, you know, I, I usually redact out of my Bible. I just kind of skip that one. But at the same time, I, more than maybe most, as it's been said, if you, if, you, if you use a lot more words, there's going to be a lot more words that are wrong. I, I have a lot more words that Satan likes to throw back at me, that were unkind or misused or just, as it says, not fitting the occasion. When I purpose to protect my heart with words that are seeking to build up, we greatly reduce the attacks and the accusations of our adversary. 
So those are three ways that Paul points out that we can protect our heart. But, as I said, imputed righteousness leads to right living, not perfect living. So what happens when we do mess up and we give opportunity to the devil? Well, when we do sin, we have the best defense attorney. For every accusation, we have an advocate. And as I said last week, so not this week, but the week before, I, I spent my whole week in jury duty. And I'd love to give you more, but it's still going on. Um, they, they did a recess, and we have to start again October 16th, so I got to carry it for a few more weeks and, and all that. But I will say, walking away from it, that you get a new perspective on a defense attorneys. And I feel like if they were just taught the word objection, that was their job. To just object to everything. Because it doesn't matter the outcome. If you just object, you've, you've messed the whole thing up. Just keep, keep objecting. One word. I want to look up 1 John 2.1 to close with. He says, my little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. Don't give opportunity to the devil. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father. Jesus Christ, the righteous. How does righteousness protect our heart? Because when we do sin and accusations start to come, and you see that prosecutor stand up and say, did you see what he just did? With one word, our advocate shuts him down. It's not objection. Dave and I had a little discussion on what that word, one word is. Some say it's just simply his name. With one little word, he will fell him. Maybe it's blood, the blood of Christ. Maybe it's grace. Maybe it's forgiven. Maybe it's bought. I wonder what that one word is that comes to mind for you. That your advocate yells back to the prosecutor. Say, nope. We have the best defense attorney. Paul writes these things. John wrote this so that we may not sin. We don't want to give opportunity to the devil. We want to put on the bulletproof vest, but we don't want distributing bullets either. But if we do, we have the best defense attorney. Let's pray. God, we praise you for your righteousness that you gave us. We praise you for the forethought that the sins that you paid for, you agonized over, would still cause us problems. That even though they've been bought and paid for, the accusations would still come. So we thank you that you advocate for us. And we pray that every day we would put on the full armor of God that we might stand against our adversary. That we might be able to stand against these accusations as we stand in the righteousness of God. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand together.
is your faithfulness, O oh God. You wrestle with the sinner's restless heart. You lead me by still waters into mercy. us apart. So remember your people, remember your children, remember your promise, oh God. Your grace is enough, your grace is enough. God of Jacob, you use the weak to lead the strong. You lead us in the song of your salvation, and all your people sing along. So. So oh. 